Well, my friends, oh, look at my notes. There you go. Uh, now you know my sermon. Um, if I if I have to stand up here, I can I cannot deny that there's a lot of heavy things happening in our world today. And if I was forced to pick maybe one word that would describe what um, I think is happening in our world today, it would be turmoil. We're all experiencing a lot of heaviness right now, aren't we? I read an article or, or I heard someone say um, a couple days ago that we are experiencing more than one once in a lifetime thing, event, more than any generation that's, that's gone before us. And, and that weighs so heavily on me. Does it, does it weigh on you? It feels like every day we wake up and, and, and just when we think that this mountain of terrible things that's looming above us can't get any higher, something else happens and, and something else is added to it and it just gets more and more intimidating. Last week, if you were here or you tuned in online, we heard about how we're vulnerable and we're more disconnected than ever because of the pandemic we've been living through for the last two years. And that vulnerability is magnified by the threat of a third world war. Mental health is at an all-time low. Loneliness is at an all-time high. Families and friends and communities are divided over politics, sometimes to the point of hostility. And it just feels like even Christians have gotten drawn into this a little bit and, and we've not been immune to the effects of these things that can so easily divide us. Maybe we've, we've been guilty of drawing lines or even just yelling at the TV, but saying like there's an us and there's a them and somehow I'm, I'm being attacked and, and they, whoever they are, are the enemy. And often, as I'm watching the news or I'm reading an article, which I don't do as much anymore, I'm going to confess because it's really hard, um, I just... I just stop sometimes and I think to myself, the world needs Jesus. But I also find myself at a loss as to how to best preach the gospel in this time to a world that's increasingly hostile to the good news of Jesus. Or if, not, if they're not hostile, at least they're, they're like apathetic to the message. And they don't believe that that's what they need right now. And so in light of all of this stuff that's going on in the world, um, I don't blame you if you're struggling, and I just want to confess that I'm struggling as well. And uh, today we're, we're going to talk about how we, how we preach the gospel to a struggling world. And we're going to be back in Genesis today, and we're probably going to see um, the answer in an unlikely place. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Genesis 19 with me, uh, we're going to be reading uh, starting in verse 1. And we read that two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. And before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came, with, came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. 
And Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who, I have never who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, often when we're reading this story, we focus on the unthinkable things that are happening in the city of Sodom and, and the stuff of, like, these men coming to try to, to rape these messengers from God, these guests in Lot's house. And we think about the impending destruction of the city of Sodom that's coming soon, that we know is coming. And admittedly, this part of Lot's story is pretty weird. Um, and we're not going to go there today, but I will remind you right now of the Q&A time. If you have questions about other um, parts of the, the story of Sodom, feel free to ask those when Charlie and I are up here. But today I want to look at how Lot hosted strangers. The messengers of God, how his hospitality was countercultural to the city that he was living in at the time. And we're going to look at our call also to be countercultural and to offer radical hospitality to our world that so desperately needs to hear about Jesus. And we're going to look at hospitality as being the most effective way to spread the gospel in our day and age and to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. So let's look back at our story, and, and we find Lot sitting at the gates of Sodom, and he sees these messengers approaching, and he leaps up, and he runs to them, and he begs them to come and stay in his house, and they refuse, and then he insists, and he brings them into his house, and he provides them with food, and he protects them from the men of Sodom who are banging down his door with, shall we say, very inhospitable intentions. And we know that this is countercultural in Sodom because of how Ezekiel describes the sins of that city. Now, throughout the Bible, there are various sins that are listed as being the sins that Sodom was guilty of. And so we're going to read some, a, a list, but it's not exhaustive. It's just one perspective on the sins that Sodom was guilty of in the eyes of the Lord. And so let's read that. Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. So this, these were some of the sins of Sodom. They didn't care for the poor or needy. They were overfed, which is to say that they were wealthy, but they were not generous. They were gluttonous, and they consumed with no regard for their fellow humans. And their pride was what led to their downfall. And so when we look at Lot begging these visitors to come into his house and stay with him, and, and, and he wanted to protect them above anything else in his household, it seems that Lot is set apart from his neighbors, that he's acting different. He's being countercultural. He showed hospitality and he showed concern where his counterparts were just more interested in their own selfish gain and using these messengers for their own pleasure. And if you back up one chapter to Genesis 18, you see an account of Abraham offering these same messengers hospitality as well. And the accounts of the hospitality offered between Abraham the uncle and Lot the nephew were actually quite similar. Both are, are sitting at the entrance of their dwelling places, Abraham at his tent, Lot at the city gates, and they're eagerly watching for an opportunity to do good. And when they see it, they leap up and they go. 
and they insist on inviting these strangers into their homes, and they wouldn't take no for an answer, and they provide food and refreshment for the stranger. And commentators believe that because Lot's hospitality was so similar to Abraham's that he showed concern and humility and love for his neighbor, it's one of the reasons why he was found righteous in the eyes of the Lord and he was saved from the destruction of Sodom. But why, why is hospitality so much a part of Lot's story of why he was saved and why is it important to God and why is it important for us? Well, the answer is that God is a God of hospitality. I used, I used that word a lot so far, and I haven't really defined it, so let's actually do that now. When we think about hospitality, usually it's like, come over to my house, and we'll eat some food and play some games, and, or you can invite me over to your house, and I will take your hospitality. It's usually a meal in someone's house. But the meaning of hospitality actually goes much deeper than that. It, um, comes from two Greek words, and I apologize to any of the Greek people who are sitting in this, this room who um, know I'm about to butcher the pronunciation of these words, but let me give it a shot. The first word is philos, which is um, non-erotic love, and the second word is xenos, which is where we get the word xenophobia from, or fear of the stranger, or fear of other. And so hospitality is loving the stranger. And it's extending privileges of community to people that don't have the standing to expect it, especially to the vulnerable. And it's offering identity to outsiders, to identify with them and to treat them like insiders and extend the privileges across the differences. How do we know that hospitality is important to God? How do we know that God is a God of hospitality? It's because the Bible is full of examples of how he shows hospitality towards his people, how he hosts us. For example, all of human life begins with God's hospitality. He created a place for us to live in a world that we had no claim to inhabit. He just placed us here lovingly. He didn't just give us what we need either. If you remember back to the, the creation story that we explored in the series, uh, earlier in the series of Genesis, in Genesis 2 we read about the garden that God created and how he created these trees that were beautiful to look at and he created this food that was delicious to eat. He didn't need to do that. He could have just given him like the formula that he needed, Adam the, needed to survive. But God was pleased to provide above and beyond what Adam needed he wanted Adam to also find a light in the creation that he was placed in. And God welcomed all of us eventually, and he provided for us food and protection above and beyond what we would need. Human creatures are the recipients of his provision every day of our lives. And it was a dangerous thing for God to do, because what ended up happening? We destroyed his pristine world, and he knew that was coming. We alienated ourselves from him. The Bible says that we became enemies of God. We were dead in our sins. We hated God by our nature. We were separated from him. We were unable to help ourselves. And even then, he didn't cast, off, cast us off. He didn't draw a line of himself and, and, and the rest of us. He didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. 
Instead, he continued to be with his people, providing for them, hosting them throughout their lives. And we see this as we explore through the Old Testament. As the Israelites were leaving Egypt, we see this um, hospitality in the protection that came from the cloud, the pillar of cloud at, by day and the pillar of fire by night. And he fed the Israelites directly with manna and quail and even water from a rock. And in the Psalms, we see references to God spreading a table in the wilderness. That's, that's Psalm 78. And we also see how the cosmos is God's garden in which all of his creatures receive provision. And that's Psalm 104. And perhaps the most clear and compelling Old Testament picture of God hosting us, of God providing for us, is Psalm 23, particularly the last two verses. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God prepares a table before us, and it is lavish. The Bible tells us that God desires to give good gifts to his people, and he loves us, and he goes above and beyond to provide for us. So he sets a table before us, loaded with delicious, extravagant food. And that's not all that we can expect at this table. You know, he initiates it, he moves towards us, he's the one that invites us to this table. And they, we still have enemies stalking around us, but when we're at this table, God is protecting us. We come to the table vulnerable because the enemies are still out there, but we are safe with him. And our feast is not just good food. It's, it, the Bible says it's goodness and love that he lavishes on us as well. And because of his protection and his goodness and his mercy, um, it will take the place of, of the enemies that pursue us. And so as we go on our journey through life and we look around, we start to see his goodness and his mercy. And we don't see our enemies because he's protecting us. Because God is, is hosting us, he's extending protection over us and providing what we need. And we are so welcome at this table. We're invited to this table no matter what we are struggling with in our lives, no matter what our failures are. Because God wants us to come and experience his delight in us. And he wants to experience his, us to experience his blessing and his boundless grace that seeks to lavish riches on us when we're poor in spirit, and to bring us to a place of belonging with him. And maybe you're, you're sitting here today and you're listening to me talk and you're looking at your life and you're feeling like there's no way that you're invited to this table, that the things you've done have disqualified you from sitting at this table or maybe you're even having trouble seeing it because you, all you see is the list of things, list of reasons why God could never love you, why God would never invite you. And maybe you're thinking about all the ways that you haven't measured up, even this week, and how you have so many reasons why you're excluded from this invitation, but that's not true. Those are lies. This is a table of lavish hospitality. It's still offered to you no matter what you've done. And God is inviting you to it regardless 
of your failures, regardless of whether we feel like we've measured up or not. And we know this because of God's ultimate act of hospitality, of God's provision for our ultimate need, and that's Jesus. You see, the Bible said that Jesus came eating and drinking. He, like his father, practiced hospitality. He both gave and received it. He welcomed the outsider. He wasn't so much interested in the insider. He turned water into wine at a wedding just because he could, just because he wanted them to have more wine. He miraculously fed 5,000 people, more than that, actually. He ate with sinners and prostitutes and adulterers. He told stories like the Good Samaritan where the guy who should have been the outsider, should have been the one that was like the, the bad guy in the story was actually the hero, which made a lot of people uncomfortable. He ate with Zacchaeus. He welcomed Matthew into his inner circle, both of whom were tax collectors who were seen as cultural enemies, who were seen as having betrayed their own, and still he welcomed them. He talked to people and he hung out with people who even made the disciples uncomfortable. And the people who seemed to be the natural choice for his inner circle, the, the Pharisees, he was the people, those were the people that he was the hardest on. In Luke 14, we read about who Jesus wants at his table when he's throwing a dinner party, who he intentionally would choose. It says in verse 12, what Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is who Jesus chose to be at his table. His table that is huge and has room for everyone. Often our hospitality can be a conditional thing. I'm going to invite you over and then you invite me over and you know we, we invite the people who are in, in our, inside our group, who are inside our comfort zone and we seldom think to invite the people who are outside of that. But Jesus showed unconditional hospitality. He invited people who um, were carrying burdens to just come to him and rest, just like God did in Psalm 23. He gave time to people that no one else would give time to. He met with people wherever he went. He was extending the boundaries of the kingdom of God, welcoming them in, welcoming in many who, who would not have made the cut if you or I were, were choosing. John Tyson calls it creating portals of belonging. Jesus approached people with love. He tore down barriers. He created environments of welcome. He included people who were outcasts and even people who were not totally on the up and up. Hello, Judas Iscariot in his inner circle. And he, he did it even though it would kill him. And he willingly went to his death so that more people would come to know him and be welcomed into his family. And as Christians, we're called to do the same. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about today. In fact, hospitality is central to the Christian practice. In Christ, we've been converted from outsider to insider. And we've been converted from enemy to friend. 
and from stranger to brother or sister. And we're called to extend that to other people. Now, I've probably told this story before, but one of the most compelling pictures of hospitality that I have ever personally experienced did not take place in a house or at a meal. But it was when I was running mission trips for youth groups in downtown Vancouver. And uh, during that time, we spent a lot of time on the downtown east side of Vancouver. And if you're not familiar with that, that area of Vancouver, it's usually the area on the map that's covered by like the blow up of downtown, the downtown core, because I kind of don't want you to know that it's there. It's a three block radius of, um, of an area where drug use is rampant, people experiencing homelessness, people all over the place just struggling with their lives. It's hard to find the words to describe the human condition there and, and, and the heartbreaking state of it. But um, many people who I talked to over the years that I, work, that I worked down there would tell me that they were just there to die. That they were waiting for their addiction to kill them because they would rather die than experience the withdrawal symptoms that it would take to get off their addiction. And so every Tuesday for 10 weeks, every summer, our groups would go to this place called Street Church which is just a little humble church, just like kind of a, a room, one room above a storefront, um, located at Main and Hastings, which is the central intersection of that area. And this church opened their doors 365 days a year, and they served hot dogs, and they did a little service. And you could, people could come in, and they could grab a hot dog, and they could stay and listen to the sermon and the service, or they could leave, didn't matter. Or they could just stay and hang out and chat. People are talking all through the sermon. It's fine. It's what they're there for. And so our groups would come and we would lead the service and we would serve the food and we would talk to the people. And we would lead prayer walks around the, the area and we'd hand out popsicles or water bottles to people who wanted to cool off on a, on a hot night in the summer. And so this one particular day, I was late meeting the group because I was a supervisor at the time and I had a meeting. So my staff team had the, the group there already and I was rushing to get to, to where they were. And as I was walking down the street, I was passing a whole bunch of people that were just sitting on the side of the road, but that was normal. They're sitting on the sidewalk and they're just hanging out and I'm walking and I'm almost there and this woman that I'd met the week before sees me and she goes, hey, beautiful, come sit with me. And I stood there for a minute, and I was kind of like, I'll have to go meet my group. Uh, I don't really want to sit down right now. And uh, I finally decided my staff could handle the group. They did not need me to be there. I just like to be there because, you know, I like to feel important or whatever. Um, and so she, she invited me to sit down, and so I sat down with her. And I watched this woman greet every person that walked by by name. And if she didn't know their name, she asked their name. And she knew their stories. She knew that one woman that walked by who was almost doubled over was, was like that because she was struggling with osteoporosis because of drug use. And she knew the struggles of all these people and she called out to them and she asked them about specific things in their lives. And she was no stranger to struggle herself. She lived in a one-room hotel room that you paid for by the day and it was like anybody's guess as to whether or not she was gonna be able to afford it the next day. But she sat there, having nothing to gain from doing this, except to love people who were walking by, people who were outcasts, people who were the lowest of the low in the city. 
And she greeted them, and she extended hospitality to them. And as I sat there with her, I felt like I was sitting beside Jesus, like the most clear picture of Jesus I'd ever encountered in my life. She was extending portals of belonging to everyone who passed her by, and I was so blessed by her example that day. And eventually our groups of kids came by and offered me a popsicle thinking I was in this group. And I was like, hey guys. And they were like, whoa, Cheryl. Um, But I, I was like, her example of hospitality is far above anything we're doing in this city as missionaries. We see a good picture of hospitality that we're supposed to show in 1 Peter 4, 8, and 9. It says, above all, Love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. What Peter is saying here and what this woman showed me is that hospitality isn't enough. Just having someone over to your house is not enough. We also have to love others deeply, and we see that in Christ's example. But that's the hard part. When we think about it, the people that we're supposed to be inviting in, the people who Jesus listed as being the the preferred guests for his dinner party, that's hard. It's easy to invite the people we like over, the people who are going to make us laugh, who we find easy to love. That's totally easy. But making spaces for people where maybe before we've drawn a line of us and them, not so easy. People alienated from us for whatever reason. Maybe it's cultural differences, disagreements in politics or other things. People we just didn't realize we should invite in. Sky Jatani says the word hospitality comes from the word hospital, which means a lot of, a lot of things to us now, but um, at one time it simply meant a home for strangers. And he says this, Our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing radiating the light of heaven. And our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. In our churches, people should find rest from the battle for acceptance and release from the lie that they are nothing more than the goods they possess. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and our peepholes, when we begin to truly be present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. When I realized I was speaking on the topic of hospitality, my brain immediately went to a story that I've heard about one woman named Rosaria Butterfield. And if you don't know this woman, she was um, a professor in the Syracuse area, and she was as left-leaning politically as you could get. She was a lesbian in a lesbian relationship. She was anti-Christian. She taught postmodern studies. And one time in the 90s, the Promise Keeper movement came to her town, and so she wrote an article in, to the newspaper critiquing and condemning this patriarchal white, right-wing Christian movement that was trying to take over, essentially. And she said once the article had been published, as, as it usually happens, she would get mail about what she'd written. And she can usually put um, the mail in two different categories. One was the, the fan mail, the people who agreed with her, the people who were like, yeah, go Rosaria. And the other pile was the hate mail. 
but she received one letter that didn't fall into any category one day, either category. It was from a, a man named Ken Smith, and he was the pastor of a conservative, reformed church in the area. And the words that she used to describe it were kind and inquiring. And he asked her questions about her interpretations and conclusions that she had drawn in the article. He asked her what her beliefs were. He asked her to explore and defend the presuppositions that she based her arguments on. And for a week, Rosaria sat with this letter in between the two piles of letters on her desk, unsure of what to do with them. And she said a couple of times throughout that week, she tossed it out in the recycling, but then she'd go back and she'd rummage around and get it and bring it back to her desk and stare at it perplexed. And at the end of the week, she simply decided, I'm going to call this guy. And so she did. And they had a little conversation and he invited her over for dinner. And so she went. And this is what she says about her encounter. She met um, Ken and his wife, Floyd, and this is what she says. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history, but has been functionally lost in too many Christian homes. Ken and Floyd invited the stranger in, not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. They created a portal of belonging with someone they disagreed with. This family could have easily, um, you know, demonized her, con- had a contentious relationship with her, lectured her, but instead they chose hospitality. They ended up inviting her into their home a lot, and she invited them into her home, and they, she, she met their friends, and they met her friends, and their unassuming friendship, their thoughtful conversation Their unconditional love and their hospitality were used by the Spirit, and Rosaria eventually became a Christian. They chose humility and love. They chose to extend a portal of belonging to someone that could have been their enemy, to extend the boundaries of the kingdom of Jesus to someone that could have been deemed unlovable. And so friends, when we think about hospitality, we don't need to make it hard. We don't need to be the moral police in anyone's lives. We don't need to have the PhD in, in, in apologetics that's going like, to convince everyone because we're such geniuses and we're, or be great at preaching. We just need to enter into each other's lives and hear their stories, to engage in meaningful dialogue, to listen to stories, to love unconditionally. We have to listen to the Spirit's promptings for when we are to extend portals of belonging to people that we meet on the street. Environments of welcome for the stranger, for the enemy, and to embody the deep grace and love that Jesus has shown us. And so maybe that means for you sharing a meal with a coworker, you know, just hearing their story, letting them tell their story to you, and you letting them know about your life story. Or it means opening your home to someone who you previously haven't thought about opening your home to. Someone you might not agree with their politics, or for some reason it's not someone who you'd naturally invite into your home. Maybe you need to look around this room or look at the, the Zoom screens on our virtual gathering and ask the Spirit to, ask, to tell you who you need to extend a portal of belonging to. 
Maybe there's older people in this congregation who need to get to know younger people and vice versa. Married people, invite single people into your homes and vice versa. Let's not those be boundaries that we don't cross. And wherever you go, get to know people. Go to the same coffee shop, learn the baristas' names. Learn their stories. Go to the grocery store and and choose the same checkout line every time with the same cashier. Be aware of the people that you're passing on the street. Turn the stranger into a friend. Sit on a sidewalk. This weekend, some of us were at the IF gathering, um, which is the retreat that we just did um, over the last couple of days. And one of the segments of the conference, the host interviewed a pastor from the Ukraine who was instrumental in bringing hundreds of thousands of people over the borders into safety. And he shared from his heart about what he and his people were experiencing in this war and, and how the church was uniting more than ever before to um, work to protect people and to save people. And at the end of his interview, the house was about to pray for him and he interrupted her and he said, can I just say this? He said, yes, the Russian Federation invaded our country. Yes, they caused all that has happened. But what Putin does doesn't necessarily represent every Russian who lives in Russia. And so I would love for you to pray also for Russian people. There were over 10,000 Russian soldiers who have died. And so you have 10,000 families who have lost their sons, husbands, brothers. And so we would love for you all to pray for those families as well, for the Lord to comfort them. people are being bombed and displaced and killed and he's asking for prayer not just for his own people but for his enemy friends that is extending privileges of community across borders and across boundaries to those who have no standing to to expect it that is hospitality that is love And if this pastor can show love and compassion and ask for prayer for people who are literally attacking his home and threatening his life, surely we can extend hospitality to people we might not agree with. Extending biblical hospitality to others is one of the greatest needs in our world. And it's how the gospel is going to most effectively be spread in our day and age, in our cultural moment. And like Rosaria Butterfield, the gospel shared gently and lovingly and consistently through relationship is how we are going to see more and more unlikely converts join the family of God. And so let me leave you with this from Rosaria Butterfield. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They take their own sins seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They know they are like meth addicts and sex trade workers. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no expectations, or sorry, with no exceptions. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors 
They seek out the underprivileged, and they know the gospel comes with a house key. And that's the name of the book that she's written, if anyone is interested in reading more about her story. So friends, our motivation for extending hospitality to the stranger is our experience of hospitality from God. And so let's look for opportunities as we go from here to open portals of belongings because that's what God does. And we want to watch what he does through that. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for how you have hosted us in ways that we haven't even seen yet or imagined. We thank you that you are a God who goes above and beyond to provide for his people, who loves unconditionally even though we've messed up time and time again. Father, I pray that you would cultivate a profound love within ourselves for people who are very different from us. And Jesus, I pray that you would transform our lives and that you would use us to transform the lives of people that we meet wherever we go. This can only happen through you, through the guiding of your spirit. So I pray that you would make us receptive to the promptings of opening portals of belonging. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.